Hello and welcome to Semaphore Uncut, a show where we talk about products, technologies, and people behind communities and products. My name is Darko. I'll be your host today. I'm a co-founder of Semaphore. And today with us, we have Brad Fisher. Thank you, Brad, for joining us. And yeah, feel free to go ahead and introduce yourself. My name is Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps consultant and author and instructor, and I teach Thanks. Docker. So you have, you know, vast experience in teaching people Docker, you know, from DevOps people to developers and, you know, everyone who has been in the industry for a while and the newcomers. So when starting with Docker, what are some of the things that you, you know, introduce to people first? Maybe you can give us a bit around those first steps. This is just to figure out what a container is, not so much how to use them or how to use the command line or anything like that, but what containers do keeps expanding. So it keeps adding more features to them and more things that they do. So really at the end of the day, all a container is, is an application or any application or a set of applications that are confined and restricted to their own set of resources. And at this point, they can run on any operating system. It's not anything like a VM technically. It's nothing like a virtual machine technically, but a lot of people compare it to a VM because it's a way to isolate. And so really at the end of the day, it's just taking a bunch of computing resources and isolating them down to a single program or a small set of programs. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> My immediate, you know, thought was it was something about the command line and was the first thing to do. But yeah, the concept yeah. is what is there. Is like analogy of like being in the, you know, world of Windows, there's exe file, which is, you know, very familiar to Probably even my mother knows that there is that extension. Right. Is that analogy any useful when explaining containers? Yeah, and that's the trick. Because containers isn't just one thing anymore, it's a way to run an application in isolation. Someone would say, that's interesting. If you've been around Unix for a while, you know we've had that kind of feature for decades and things like jails and chroot and stuff like that. So if I'm talking to someone who's not in tech, and they ask me what is Docker or something like that, because they usually if they've heard of something like this or they see a T-shirt I'm wearing, I give them the analogy of a phone app. So I say, don't look at your Windows computer, think about your smartphone and think about how you can browse a list of things that you want on that phone and you can basically tap them and they'll show up on the phone and all the settings are there, the app is there, and it's kind of confined inside that single little runtime and then when you delete it it all goes away and it's sort of a clean adding and a clean removing of that thing from your phone and i do that for servers essentially it's like what i would tell my mom right <laughs> like i do that same thing for servers on the internet because when you talk about containers it's hard to talk about just one part of it and yes it's technically running something in an isolated environment but it's also the packaging format that Docker sort of combined with the idea of running something in isolation. Let's make a universal packaging format that we can move around the internet very easily and store it on servers called registries. And that way, you know, companies like yourself can run those things in isolation and pull them down, push them back up when they're done, like stuff like that. And I think it was really the initial combination of running in isolation and then having a distribution package format that's universal across every operating system that you really run apps today on. I think that was really the magic that set the whole container evolution on fire. Because a lot of old hats will say, hey, you know, we've had this kind of technology for decades, but no one really packaged it up in an easy to use way with those different steps until Docker did so. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah and the uh, analogy about text that just show that I'm old and yeah, analogy about <laughs> apps in the app store is much better, yeah. The thing that it's clean yeah. when you remove it and install it and it's, there are no regrets 
when you do sudo apt-get install something, you know, good luck with removing that yeah. relic. Yeah. Yeah, and if you look at all the other operating systems, they are all sort of following that pattern, right? The iPhone was, at least in my mind, sort of the clear, distinct point. We now have this compute power device that runs an application. And when they released the App Store, which wasn't on day one of the iPhone, they created that packaging format. So it was a packaging format, distribution format, and runtime isolation format. It was sort of all those things in one. And to the user, it was just, oh, easy, tap, tap, done. And of course, you know, containers aren't quite tap, tap, done. But... I think that that model of you isolate the runtimes and that everything stays confined together in that one space, and then you can run many different things on the same compute unit, like a smartphone, and that those things don't necessarily have access to each other, they don't necessarily see each other's data or anything like that, unless you give them specific access. I think it does parallel very easily to the container ecosystem. Yeah, and distribution is one of the key points. As you said, I remember the times when we were using Elixir, let's say, to have a secure environment but still not to bring all the emulation and all the VM, you know, things that will just slow you down. Packaging and distributing tar files and what exactly you need to package and how, that was a very hard part. Yeah. In terms of getting started up and running with Docker, what are some of the challenges that you are seeing when people are starting to use Docker? I mean, there are these high-level concepts, obviously, but then there is a command line, there is a thing of like running those, and of course, just creating those containers, understanding layers and so on. So, I mean, those are roughly the areas that I see, but right. I'd love to hear what's in practice, the challenging part. There's lots of ways to attack that question, right? You can talk about, is someone just learning it and they need to learn the features, or is someone looking for a reason to use it? Because often, especially now that we're getting more into the enterprise-focused container area where you know, systems are very complex, people already have full-time jobs, and this is another thing that they have to learn and support and run in production. So it's not always obvious exactly what the benefits are, you know, why I would even bother with this. And so I spend a lot of my time on Docker 101 talking not just about features, but about what benefits and why you would want containers at all. So I think if you're just curious about the technology, I think your path is really learning the command line first, because even though we've got all these neat GUIs out there and different tools, the reality is if you start just searching the internet for container stuff, it's overwhelming, right? Five years ago, there was basically Docker and a few extra tools out there. Kubernetes was just coming out. And now we have hundreds if not thousands of tools that are all across the entire landscape of IT that are talking about containers. So it can be a little bit confusing. Well, if I need to learn how to run a container, well, now there's many ways to run them. So it can a little bit be overwhelming. I think for a lot of us, really just learning Docker 101, taking a Docker course like mine, Docker Mastery, that's going to answer so many of your questions about the technology. How does the package work? Does it include a kernel? You know, what files are in the container and not in the container? You know, how do I make my own containers or how do I use someone else's? So many of those basic questions are answered in a sort of tutorial one-on-one course. But I think to the larger question for businesses, for IT managers, you know, development team managers that are trying to figure out, should we do containers? For them, a lot of it's looking at the pain points in their organization And nowadays, when we're all focused on DevOps-style workflows, it's really about what is taking the longest, right? Is it the local development experience, and that's a real pain for our team? Maybe it's onboarding a developer that's a real pain, a new developer. Maybe the CI system is slow, and we need to look at a new one, or we need to figure out how to make it faster. Maybe it's really complicated, so we have multiple people that have to manage that solution. Or maybe it's just getting updates into production, and not screwing everything up, right? Not kicking off users and killing connections and 
you know, how do we do that if we need to on a daily basis? And so once you start looking at those sort of three areas as local development, the CICD, and then the production, and you figure out what problem do I want to solve first? You know, because obviously uh, at this point, containers really streamline that whole process if you fully adopt them in every area of your workflow. But you got to pick one to attack first, right? You got to pick one to go after. So a lot of teams, they focus on just learning how to develop locally in Docker and then running tests and stuff locally in Docker on their machine using something like Docker Compose. And that's a pretty common thing for developers to go after. But at the same time, I work with teams that are just getting into containers and their real big push is to streamline their testing in CI, their deployment out of that CI into CD solutions like that. So they're not necessarily terribly motivated by local development streamlining, but more about the once it leaves my desktop computer, <laughs> once it leaves my developer's machine and it's in a Git repo or something, we want to make that whole process faster and better. And I think if you want to sum up containers, the overall benefit of containers is speed. It's just one word, speed of everything. And when I do presentations to executives, it's usually like a list of it improves the speed of development, it improves the speed of testing, it improves the speed of deployment, of recovery, you name it. You just sort of go from the inception of software all the way through the pipeline to monitoring, replacement, updating, stuff like that, sort of the day two operations. Every single one of those steps now has features and products in the market that make containers a better fit. And we're very quickly getting to a world where just six or seven years later, it's hard to say why you wouldn't want containers in sort of the standard enterprise developer workflow. Like whether you're a software startup or an enterprise, chances are that there's a good chunk of your workflow that's going to be benefited by having containers in there. Okay, thanks for sharing that. And I have a follow-up question in that area. You mentioned the development environment, CICD environment, production environment. Let me just add that over the years, one of the biggest struggles of running a CI is that, you know, difference between, you know, development environment and also the CI environment, the production. And when you have that mismatch of one library, which might be, you know, a different version that could cause, you know, endless hours of debugging. It works of local machine, doesn't work in the CI. So containers are definitely solving that. And in the developer happiness area and embracing the Docker is the main thing being able to deploy and know what's deployed or is that local development environment experience also something that's for some people even more important? Yeah, I think it depends on the person, right? If you're a developer that's just local and your job ends at doing a Git push to a repo and there's someone else managing CICD and there's someone else managing production and you're not having to do all the different jobs, I think that local developer happiness is a big issue. I think one of the key things nowadays that for local development where Docker really saves you so much time is if you're expanding your microservices rollout and you're ending up with possibly a dozen different code bases running separately on your local machine, it's pretty hard to do that without containers. It requires a lot of maintenance and scripting and automation and vagrant and all these different things before we really had containers. But now all the setups that I see nowadays where people are focused on microservice development locally, they're using Docker, Docker Compose, Docker Desktop, and they're using that Docker Compose YAML file as a way to script out the dozens of different containers that all need to run at the same time so that they can then develop on one and you know use that API. Maybe they're building out a, an API microservice framework and they need a bunch of other things running on their local machine just so that they can start developing, right? And 
I don't think we would have discussion around microservices today if we didn't have containers because I think the tooling around managing a whole bunch of different things all running together and seamlessly talking to each other over networking and you know using TCP IP as the backbone for how your app talks. I think containers are really at this point the only feasible way of getting that done. So definitely local developer, do that. But if you're someone who has to care about more of the pipeline, you know if you're someone who also has to manage the CI CD or if you're in the CI solution every day, or if you have to actually care whether or not the updates got to the server or maybe even the person who's also deploying it to the server, you're doing all the jobs, I think that containers really reduce the level of complexity. So if you're having to manage all those different parts, there are so many different tools and scripts and commands that you have to learn if you don't have containers. Because like you said, the servers are totally different than your local machine probably because your local machine might be Mac or Windows and then your servers run and just trying to keep that sanity. <laughs> you know, it was the job paid for to do was to help people you know, manage that chaos. And now that we have containers, obviously we're always going to have a little bit of chaos, but I think that being able to know that the libraries I have locally are exactly the same ones that I have on the server, that the code base is exactly the same. If you're running a node app, that the node executable on the server is the exact same build as the one that I am testing on locally or in my CI solution. I think that has allowed us essentially just to go faster, right? That's going back to that same theme of speed. So now developers can stop worrying about every single commit and managing that through the pipeline. And now they can just keep developing, pull requesting, you know, focusing on that workflow and let the rest of it automate, which kind of gets us into the conversation around DevOps. One of the major goals of DevOps is to automate and speed up everything in your pipeline from development to production. And containers just makes that so much easier than before we had containers. So if you want to get your code from your machine into your Git repo, into your CI for testing and whatnot, then into a package format that you can distribute to a bunch of servers, and then onto those servers, and then update those servers on a daily basis. Looking back five years ago, it's hard to imagine all the stuff we had to do before containers. So I think anytime you can automate something, that's going to make anyone happier, right? I think the tasking that we're doing, same thing over and over every day, if we can just automate that into a system, I think everybody would be happy. You mentioned DevOps. So at some point we push all the people who like manage servers to learn to code to some extent, you know, and to have that infrastructure described in code. And roles in the IT are constantly changing. With this part, which is also a distribution format, moving very close to a developer and developer knowing much more about like production system. Are you seeing any changes in the roles and maybe the responsibilities? Yeah, I think that there's a great discussion continually going on in the community about, you know, do we really need to all know more things? I largely think that we are overall, we're all just human and we have a limited capacity for memory and learning and all that, right? So on certain days, if we were having a beer, I would have conversations about so much more we need to know now than 20 years ago and blah, blah, blah. But on a grand scale, I don't actually think that that is necessarily true. I think the things we have to care about are shifting. And I think that distracts us a little bit because I grew up in the IT world where I had to care about the packet size of my TCP, my IP packets, basically, because the physical equipment that I was plugging in wasn't necessarily going to talk automatically to each other. We've obviously had years now where for almost everyone out there, that's just not an issue. Before we had the internet, we didn't have a way to even distribute software other than floppy disks and magnetic tape. So we had to really care a lot about knowing the magnetic tape system. Is that compatible 
with our format. We didn't have USB. We had to care about the different connections and how do we get this from that over to here. We had thick net and thin net. But nobody has to care about that stuff anymore, at least not in a developer job, right? Unless you're Netflix or Google size, you typically aren't validating the packet sizes on all your different parts of your network. Like you just don't have to necessarily do that most of the time. So I think our roles are shifting. We don't know every line of code in the apps we're running. We're all using frameworks now. Unless you're sending a spaceship to Mars, you don't have to know every byte of your code. So you can now abstract that out and just say, I don't need to know the web frameworks. I don't have to build the web server. I don't have to build the date time library that manages date times for my app. That's someone else, right? And so the good news and the bad news is, the good news is we don't have to care about that as much and we can focus on new things like DevOps and maybe a little bit about server deployments and a little bit about monitoring and observability. The negative of that is that we're running a lot of code that we don't know. <laughs> and so when things start to go wrong, that's, I think, sometimes what really separates the senior engineer from the junior engineer is that both can write code, both can deploy apps, but the senior engineer is probably going to have all that experience that you just can't really teach. And they're going to be like, well, okay, this might be something related to network firewalls or network address translation or something that's maybe at a lower level that maybe a junior developer never had to care about before. But a senior one's going to say, oh, yeah, you know, that library might be a problem because even though we've never had to look at it, I've used it for a decade. And, you know, a decade ago, I remember these problems we had with this library. So let's go check out this part of the application or whatever. So I think what experience gains you is more about the operations and troubleshooting of systems when they go wrong. Right. Because I think it's easy. We call it the happy path. I write an application, I fix all the bugs locally that I know of, it goes into production and it just runs, right? So that's a happy path, easy day for a developer or an operator. But when something goes wrong in that system and you have to start troubleshooting which part of my distributed app is the problem, that is really what shows off very quickly your real skill set. Because if you don't know how the database works and you're going to have to troubleshoot it, that's a tough thing. That's why we all have support contracts. <laughs> we all have to buy software, not just use nothing but open source software. And, you know, you make it somebody else's problem at that point. So I don't know. It's a good argument. It's a good discussion. What do you think? <laughs> do we really have to know that much more? Or are we just shifting our focus from one thing to another? Let me just say that I really love you bringing up, you know, floppy disks and packet sizes into the conversation, because whenever you mention that to someone, it's a real pain, but for those who remember those things and how those work, yeah. in a bit of a recent history, I remember a couple of years ago, we really needed to know which is the EC2 instance that we have in the system and, you know, to SSH into it and to, you know, touch all the parts of the operating system. That was the reality. It was very easy and it is still, you know, easy to kill the EC2 instance, get a new one. But, you know, a couple of years later, not having to know about the physical nodes, it's a great thing. To get back to your question, so, you know, in 2010, how long did it take to deploy an application? What did you have to do? I started my career as a Rails developer, so I just know that we had to go inside and I had to, you know, install a patch, which I never touched before and do all those things. And uh, I would be much happier today if I would just package it in a container and do maybe a single command and it will start running. And I would feel much more powerful to say in that discussion, we have to learn so much more. We just have to know different things and have a different perspective. All this brings us pretty much to deployment part of this whole discussion and that's where you know users start getting value when things are deployed faster so in the landscape of docker deployment maybe it would be interesting if you would 
quickly guide us from the you know inception of Docker to what we have right now? How do you see that progress in development in you know just deploying the Docker container and you know making sure that it's running? Yeah, so nice thing about containers is they're largely unopinionated. So different tools have different levels of opinion. I think that Docker is so easy to learn and use because the way that it runs containers is fairly opinionated so that it doesn't let you really mess things up in a way that would ruin you. As long as you learn the basics of it, it won't let you do something to a container while it's running. It'll require that certain changes mean that you have to recreate a container, stuff like that. So it actually puts some guide rails on there so that you at least aren't doing things in containers that you shouldn't be doing. Because I think that, you know, containers largely came out of the idea of companies running web software. You can run anything in a container. But when you think about the origin of Docker and where they were coming from, initially they were very focused on applications that were temporary, web apps, API apps, things that didn't have persistent state. And so going back four, five, six years, in those early days, it wasn't really a great place to run databases and or anything that was saving state to disk and writing files and stuff like that that were permanent. So it started off in that area of rapid development, needing to quickly redeploy something and guarantee consistency across the whole dev test prod. So when you think about your servers, you want to design them and think about the pipeline in that way where code in the container is ephemeral. So we can destroy a container, recreate it from that same image. The image is that packaging format that stores all of your code and all of its dependencies. So you're able to throw away the copies essentially that you're running and then recreate them on the fly. So if things go wrong and your application is misbehaving, you can just get rid of that container and create a new one. So sometimes we'll say the word restart, but don't think about it physically as it's restarting. Technically what it should be doing, and most orchestrators all do this today, is that they recreate from the image a brand new container to run your app, a brand new copy of your app, essentially. And so if you think of your code, just like with your Git and other versioning systems, once we commit it, it's sort of in a read-only state, and we are going to want to guarantee that that's exactly the same thing that's running in production. Containers do the same thing. So extend that to your servers. If you have to run your own servers, you don't have to. There's lots of places now to run containers and run things like Kubernetes. By the way, if you didn't know, Kubernetes is really an API on top of containers. It's just an automation that helps you orchestrate your containers and allow you to run them in different places. I think sometimes people get confused and think that Kubernetes replaces Docker or Kubernetes replaces containers. They're all the same tools. Technically, Kubernetes is running on top of Docker and Docker runs the containers. So if you think about that in terms of your servers, your servers don't have to exist very long either. And so you really want to start designing this infrastructure that you're going to run your apps as just as temporary and as ephemeral as your containers themselves and as the code itself. So analogy here is pets versus cattle. And the idea is back in the day, you would manually create servers. You would name them, you know, server 01, server 02. And we would manually create those. And then we would copy, we would somehow get our software on there, right? We'd either use Git or some other versioning system or some other format. Maybe we'd tarball it up. Maybe some people still use apt packages where they actually use the package manager from the operating system to package up their app. And then they copy it somehow to the server using SCP. All that stuff is gone. So that is no longer in the container world how you would run a server. The goal at the end of the day is you have a server operating system you install Docker or a comparable tool, and that's it. That's all you need on there to run your containers. And you shouldn't be installing Git or you know, Python or anything else on the host operating system. From the point at which you now have a container runtime, like 
Docker or Container D is another popular one. They will basically solve the problem of getting applications, dependencies, anything else you need to run, tools. They're the ones that are going to be pulling all that down. And they're the things that are going to run those programs, stop those programs, you know, replace those programs. And so the operating system actually becomes less important. That's why we've had the rise of Docker Swarm and Kubernetes and Nomad. And these are the tools that help orchestrate the running and replacement of the programs on all your servers. And so Kubernetes is one of the hearts and minds of the internet as the most popular orchestrator. And so that's really its main job is to take all your container images that you've created and the ones you're using from open source and download those to your servers for you, run those things on your servers for you, monitor those things for you, at least at a very minimal level, and then replace those things every time you replace your code, update your code. And it gives you a nice command line or a GUI if you need it to manage all that and to manage that across hundreds or thousands of servers. And do that the same way on any cloud or any data center or any computer. Once we had the container format, the promise of orchestrators was we have a common runtime, which is the container runtime. We have a common package format that we can distribute our applications and our dependencies all in a common way, whether it's Mac, Windows, Linux, Raspberry Pis, mainframes, satellites, you know, spacecraft, doesn't matter. They all can run containers and Docker runs on almost all those places. So now that you have those commonalities, let's have a common way to organize all these things across many servers. That's how we got to orchestration, which is a layer of abstraction on top of the container abstraction. So I think a lot of people, they have a little bit of a mistake when they start learning and they immediately run to go learn Kubernetes. If you think about the layers of abstraction, you have the containers down here, then you have orchestration on top of that. You don't want to really go learn the higher level tool without learning those lower level tools first. So getting back to the first question about learning and the mistakes, if you want to learn Kubernetes, you got to learn Docker. In order to understand what Kubernetes is doing in the background, because all it's doing is running containers through the container runtime, which is Docker or one of the other variants. So when you think about your servers, think about how do I replace this server? Let's not pretend ourselves. We're not going to intentionally destroy servers every day unless we're just bored. But ideally, just like you mentioned infrastructure as code, just like your application code, you want to be able to delete your app from a server and then re-download it and then rerun it whenever you'd like. Now start looking at your infrastructure the same way and look at your servers and say, this server is temporary. So yes, I need to know its IP address and I need to know what commands are running on it, what containers are running, but let me design a system so that if I need to replace that server, maybe it's an orchestrator that replaces that server automatically and then runs your code on it. Maybe you're using something like Amazon's auto scaling groups, which allow you to delete a machine and then it will just recreate a new one or create more if you need them and then runs a quick little script when you boot up. So I think for us sysadmins, because I come up from that sysadmin background, we love to put all of our tools on a server. We love to configure it and customize it and put our tools and our favorite things. And you don't do that now on the server anymore. You should be doing that in containers. So really the only thing that should be on the host itself is the minimum on the host, and then the runtime, Docker, ContainerD, or Cryo, those are the things that runs and executes your containers and manages the containers. So once you get to that and you start mentally preparing for that, it'll change the way that you build out your servers. It'll change the way you deploy your software. We have to remember that the story doesn't get told all that often anymore, but the way that Docker was invented was because the company behind it, who wasn't called Docker originally, 
was building a competitor to Heroku. So they were trying to compete with the idea of a platform as a service, everything out of the box. You don't have to care about servers or monitoring or any of that stuff. And this company was building a competitor and ultimately just decided to give away all the best parts of their code. And then they called that project Docker. So in essence, what containers were born out of was the desire for us to stop caring so much about individual servers and individual application running or scripts that automate our package management and all that stuff. Just remove all of that abstraction and make it as easy as possible for the developer to get code onto a server and then to replace that code over and over and over again. When you start realizing that as you're building your servers and using Docker and learning Docker and Kubernetes, you start to realize it's kind of like building your own cloud a little bit when you have it all fleshed out you know, and automated. As long as you do that and you sort of keep your servers in the back of your mind, you think of them as ephemeral and temporary and that you're going to have to replace them in an easy automated way. You may not be there on day one. That's fine. You might not automatically have that built out of the box, but that's okay. You'll eventually get there. Just think of that cattle versus pets model. Go look that up if you're not familiar with that analogy. Basically, you don't want pets anymore. You don't want to name your servers, make them customized, sitting them on the couch and you know their name. You want to treat them like cattle, which probably isn't the best analogy, but <laughs> the idea is that they're just a number. They're an animal in a pen. You know how many you have, but you don't necessarily know names and eventually they're going to go away and they'll get more and then you'll raise those and they'll go away and you just have a bunch of them, right? And that's kind of how you should treat your servers. And I think that analogy is pretty old now. It's at least a decade old, but it still holds well with containers because the containers are built that way. Why not build your servers that way? Yeah, yeah. In the start of a DevOps era, it was a Snowflake server, which is, you know, so unique and special and you don't want it to be unique and special. And uh, yeah, we, we kind of, in a really nice way, passed that. And now we don't even need to know what is on that server. As long as it can run Docker container, I'm fine. You mentioned naming the server one and two and, you know, so on. So of course, when you're scaling them, but yeah, I mean, I remember the era when, you know, each server has its own different unique name and people are very creative yep. about them. And yeah, of course, every two years you add another one. Did you ever get to name that? Did you ever get to pick that pattern, what you were going to call your servers? Uh, I remember when I started my internship, I think uh, there was names after stars or something like that. Yeah. You know, so yeah, <laughs> or asteroids. Stars. Or, or yeah. I think my first one was planets. I knew way more planet names than I knew star names. Yeah or constellations or something like that. Yeah. I had a client once, theirs was all Simpsons characters. <laughs> There's an unlimited number of Simpsons characters. It's insane, hundreds at least. And so they had plenty of names for servers and they would actually keep a spreadsheet. There was always the next five names because you never knew when you're going to need a new server. Yeah. So there's always like somebody's job to go look at some Wikipedia page or something for the next five names we don't have in the Simpsons the universe. Yeah. yeah. So you had Homer and you had the Bart server. Flintstones was the same way. I think I had someone who had Flintstone names for all their servers. And so you had Barney and Rubble. Yeah. I think that probably some of the people who are just in the maybe university or just starting their career now and listening to us about these things, you know, <laughs> might think, are these guys from the Flintstones times or something like that? Right. Yeah. This is crazy. Why would you do that? Yeah. 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 I saw a couple of times and that's that path, you know, okay, I want to deploy to Kubernetes. And okay, so I need to learn Docker. So I wanted to ask about that learning path, but you pretty much answered that. Learn the Docker, learn all the things around that and view Kubernetes only as a thing which will keep it alive. Yeah, it's like saying that you want to be a node developer, but you didn't want to learn JavaScript. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, Kubernetes is a great advanced system for you know doing all sorts of things with managing running containers. But fundamentally, it's 
all just running Docker containers in the background, you know, or Docker compatible. Now that this stuff is all becoming a standards, official standards, and we have the OCI standards and other standards around networking and storage and all sorts of other things, we're getting a lot more tools in the ecosystem. Even if at the end of the day, if you're in an infrastructure that may not be running the actual Docker binary, I think the Docker tooling itself is so useful and so easy to use at first. It's still the right way to learn the path of how containers were created and how they work and what they're made of and all that stuff. And then once you get to production infrastructure, that's where it gets a lot more nuanced. If you're running on Red Hat Enterprise Linux, you would actually be running in the future a tool set that doesn't include the Docker binary. They have essentially Docker compatible tools for their systems. So it's one of those things where if you start looking at the landscape of everything, it can seem quite complex and there's a gluttony of tools out there. We keep going back to Node, but it's kind of like NPM frameworks, you know, or Python frameworks. For any problem you want to solve, there are usually multiple, if not dozens of options out there, and it can be so hard or overwhelming to want to pick one. So typically when I'm teaching my Docker 101 students or anyone who's coming to my workshops or my conference talking or whatever, or just taking one of my courses, my typical path for them is actually to learn Docker locally, you know, in a lot of detail, right? So learning all the different nuances of containers, learning how to jump into them with a shell, how do I install stuff inside my container, you know, how do I get data out of my container? You know, all the stuff that you want to deal with like that. Then I actually have them learn Swarm, which is a built-in orchestrator, similar to Kubernetes, but it's built into Docker and it's really easy to use and get started with. And so that gives them the concepts of what it means to orchestrate. Mm -hmm. Start caring more about multiple servers. Because at the end of the day, some people might ask, what is an orchestrator? My view of an orchestrator is simply its job is to make many servers act like one. So you get a single command line to run that orchestrator and you can run that command line locally or you can look at that web GUI locally and you can manage it and it acts like one server, but in the background it might be 10 or 100 servers running that stuff. And you don't really have to care about each one of them. That goes back to the pets versus cattle. So it treats everything like cattle. So you learn Swarm as your second step because that's teaching you the fundamentals of orchestration, and it might be enough. You might not have to learn Kubernetes if you don't need to go that large and complex. But because all of us are trying to build out a Netflix architecture, <laughs> we all want to be Google, right? So the internet loves the idea of using operational tools to solve problems and tools that can be very flexible. And that's where Kubernetes comes in because it has so many different ways that you can run containers and it has so many different ecosystem tools and partners that can solve every problem on Kubernetes. It ends up being the final tool that most companies end up using in the container path. And then, of course, after that, you've got you know CI tools, monitoring tools, backup tools, all that stuff. And now every vendor has said, we support Kubernetes and we support Docker because they all want to be a part of that bandwagon of the container ecosystem. You don't necessarily have to throw out all your tools, by the way, because at the end of the day, again, going back to our very first statement, containers are really just running the same programs you know, but running them in isolation with constrained resources that you define. And, you know, it's sort of putting a parameter, almost like a firewall around the file system and the networking and the compute resources and all that stuff so that your app is truly isolated on a machine. So you could run the same app 20 times on a single machine and none of them can see each other. They all look like they're their own file system and their own OS essentially. And I think that's where people start to compare it to virtual machines mistakenly because they say, oh yeah, when you go in there, you have you know, slash var and lib and you know all these places and you have bash and you can get a shell and you can 
run SSH in it if you want to. You know, you can run a web server in it. But really, at the end of the day, it's just like drawing a line around a part of an operating system and saying, if you're inside this circle, you can't get out of it unless I let you. And you can't see anything outside of it unless I let you, including things like virtual networking, you know, virtual file paths, stuff like that. So whenever I talk about aligning it with VMs, that's really the only way that I want to even associate the two, because otherwise you end up framing the conversation around, okay, well, how is it different from VMs? And the differences are so vast and wide, it's hard to even go down that road. So it's really only good to talk about what are the similarities, and it's really just similar in concept. I also experienced that comparing them is not doing any even good. You know, even the presenter and the people on the other side who are trying to understand the comparing them to VSM is just not beneficial. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All the tooling around Docker is like very mature, very polished, retains the nice user experience that it has a couple of years ago. Is there something that you would like to see in uh, Docker tooling, something that you might miss or that people, you know, might need in this area? Something that you would like to see in a, a year or two that would help us? At first, it was all about speed. So just the idea of containers and Docker in general was all about making things faster doesn't necessarily make your programs run faster. That's not a thing. But what it does is it allows all the different steps in your workflow to basically be automated through commands or you know, background processes that are automating all this stuff. So when you really think of the command line of Docker, it's really just an automation tool. It's automatically taking all your stuff when you do a Docker build command and turning that into a tarball that can then be distributed around through HTTPS. You could do that before. Like We could all write custom programs that do all that fanciness for us. But Docker is automating all that for you. So when we got to Kubernetes, Kubernetes was automating the deployment, management, replacement of containers on servers. And now we're pushing that up a level. So now we're getting to tools like the CNAB spec where the industry is trying to come around a consensus. You know, Now that we've got the Docker file and how we describe a single application and all of its dependencies, let's create this YAML file or maybe a JSON if you want to do JSON. Let's create this description of all the apps that provide my solution. So if you're trying to run a clone of Twitter, you've got background worker processes, you've got databases, you've got queues, you've got websites, you've got APIs, and those are all different containers. Maybe they're microservice, maybe they're not, it doesn't really matter. So I think the next thing that we're going to see over the next couple of years that's going to get easier is the way we describe the full breadth of our application in a common format so that I can pass you a YAML file that's got possibly a thousand lines in it. It's a lot of YAML, but that one YAML file or a set of YAML files would be the complete description of all the containers and applications I need, all the ports I need, all the different data storage volumes that I need for where I need to store different parts of data, different types of data, how those things talk to each other, you know, different environment variables that need to be set. Basically, that's all described. It's a Windows app or a Linux app, or it runs on an IoT device or a mainframe, and that common format, it's CNAB, mm -hmm. uh, CNAB, you know, their goal is to try to take what we have today, we've all got shell scripts, but we've got Compose files, we've got Helm files, Helm is a Kubernetes application description language. Other people have Terraform, and other people, you know, they have Vagrant scripts, other people have YAML for AWS and all their, you know, tooling, cloud formation. So you've got all these different tools. And at the end of the day, what we're all just trying to describe is the different parts of my application and how to put them together to make it all work. Yeah. <laughs> so Microsoft, Docker and other partners, GitLab might be in there. A couple other partners are all trying to 
come together on a consensus of how do we describe this language so that now we don't just have infrastructure as code from my infrastructure, but that we can all start sharing you know, imagine just even a simple WordPress app. WordPress typically needs at least a website and a database. Just getting those two parts of it in a single file format that you can deploy on your local machine, that you can deploy on Amazon or in your data center or on Windows. Usually every one of those requires a separate solution, separate setup. And so I think now that we have the orchestrators and we've sort of settled on two or three, four major uh, orchestrators, those orchestrators are actually getting more similar rather than more different. They're all sort of solving the same problems. They're implementing the same features. And I think the next level is how do we describe our applications as a whole, our services, essentially, as dozens, possibly even hundreds of microservices or regular apps, and then share that. How do we share that with each other? How do we work together on that? You know, up until now, it was completely custom to your situation. You know, a person on Azure couldn't move to Amazon very easily because it was completely different setup of infrastructures, completely different configurations. And, you know, it might even run your applications on different kinds of servers, like different operating systems, just because things would be different between the two cloud hosters. So we've solved that at the runtime level. We've now solved it at the orchestrator level. I think describing our apps is that next big thing. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to see that. And I would also love one other thing. If that file doesn't have to be 1,000 lines, <laughs> I would really <laughs> prefer that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we all start with 100 lines, and then it gets more complicated after that, yeah. right? We all start with 10, and then it becomes 20, and then it's 100. Yeah. yeah. I mean, our deployment to Kubernetes maybe has 20, 20 microservices. And we have thousands of lines of codes of YAML file. And most of it is the same, and most of it is kind of generated, but just the number of lines is, you know, <laughs> scary. It's a lot. Yeah. yeah. And I think we're definitely getting to that point where there's the same defaults built in and that you don't have to specify defaults. Mm-hmm. Of course, the trick around that always is that our defaults should never change because if I don't specify it and then you change it on the application side, <laughs> Kubernetes decides to change a default, then, you know, Good luck. now my program's broke. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the first couple of years of all these tools, it was tough to figure out what should be default because we all didn't really know. And if you actually look at the last couple of Kubernetes releases, there's a lot more focus on stability and long-term support and sort of mainstream stuff rather than new feature, new feature, new yeah. feature, changing feature, breaking feature, you know, all that stuff that all of these tools have gone through over the course of the last five, six years. So yeah, yeah. it's going to get boring and then we're going to be able to focus on that next abstraction. Yeah, yeah. I love boring things. <laughs> um, okay, it was a great discussion. And I think that all of our viewers learned a lot from this. If you haven't already, check out Brad's course and workshops. We are going to share the link also to his YouTube channel in our description. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our channel. And yeah, Brad, thanks you once again for uh, joining us. It was amazing. Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. See ya.